Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking to Katherine Livingston about her new book entitled Lily Pulitzer, Palm Beach, Tropical Glamour, and the Birth of a Fashion Legend. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, wonderful. Uh, good morning to you. And uh, uh, Well, actually, I had a 40-year career in magazines uh, covering uh, fashion and fashionable people, um, a society, and uh, particularly my last few books have been uh, about personalities, uh, although... Uh, but. 20 of these years I spent at Hearst Magazines, first uh, as a staff writer at Harper's Bazaar, uh, then as uh, eventually as executive editor at Town & Country Magazine, where I spent 15 years, um, and some of the best years for that magazine, where we did uh, the entire issues on Canadian society, Mexican society, women of Milan, and things like that. So I traveled quite a lot and uh, interviewed um, many uh, people, illustrious people in uh, uh, design, but also as well in uh, uh, business, society figures like Gloria Vanderbilt, uh, television personalities like Meredith Vieira, uh, movie stars (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor and Robert Redford. And so I I have a lot of celebrity, uh, uh, Tom Landy, football legend, Placido Domingo, the opera singer, Henry Mancini, the composer, Roberta Flack. Um, uh, so I did quite a lot on music personalities. Mm-hmm. I also traveled a lot uh, to places like, uh, I worked with some of the uh, top photographers in fashion for, uh, fashion and society, such as Slim Aarons, Richard Avedon, uh, Hero, Francesco Scavillo, who did a lot of the beautiful Cosmopolitan covers, but uh, also worked for Town and Country, Philip Dixon, Tim Street Porter, who does uh, a lot of beautiful interiors. Um, he's an Englishman. Um, Harry Benson, Scotsman, who does a lot of uh, Vanity Fair and People magazine stories. And um, but then I went on to Time Warner and uh, became part of their uh, developing a team of new, for new magazines such as Quality, Leisure, and Health. And um, eventually I went back to Time Warner again to develop, uh, to be part of a development team of 140 television segments on women's health issues uh, called Your Mind and Body, which ran on CBS television just before Martha Stewart's original show, uh, and not that many people have seen it because it was very early Sunday mornings, about 8 o'clock, but it was actually a very interesting show. And uh, um, in, in between, I also uh, was uh, uh, did some freelance writing for Gourmet, Condé Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, House and Gardens, uh, Connoisseur, and so forth. And I did an article, actually, for the Tatler in, uh, in England. And... Uh, uh, and an article or two for uh, German Vogue. But um, uh, in recent years, I've been writing books. Among them was Bed Linen, for, published by Knopf, which was a, a, literally about bed linens. And then I did several uh, coffee table books on eclectic interiors, Victorian interiors. And um, I had an, uh, a book that was actually was launched in London. It never had an American uh, um, a publisher it was called Yesterday is Gone. It was a story of a, a jet set personality, Rosemary Kanzler, much married, married about seven times. And, uh, and the, my most two most recent books were um, In the Spirit of Aspen, published by Asseline, uh more of a picture book, but also uh, taking the history of Aspen from the personalities who went through the, the international, the post World War to. Uh, big skiers, skiing stars from Scandinavia like Stein Erikson and um, and uh, the people who started, uh, developed it through the University of Chicago who started the Aspen Institute and things like that. So it was mostly about Aspen from the personality's point of view. And my most previous book, which was called High Rise Lowdown, was the story of the... Uh, of who's who in the 25 most coveted apartment houses in Manhattan. And uh, so 
uh, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> I received some awards, uh, the Penny Missouri Journalism Award from the University of Missouri. I received an award from the uh, Marquette College of Communications, from Nina Ricci Perfumes. I did a lot of beauty and fashion writing early in my life and uh, my career and um, um, so forth. <laughs> I guess that's enough, isn't it? It's a pretty long bio. Yeah, that's a great resume. Um, so what drew you to Lily Pulitzer as a subject? Well, actually, uh, I think society writing is is uh, uh, it's very different today. So, so many of the personalities are sort of PR driven, and I was looking for a really genuine American uh, society figure, but who would also have a resonance with the general public. And in in those in most recent times, I think there were only about three uh, who who reached out beyond their own. Uh, uh, social status. Uh, uh, they, those were, I would say, Mrs. Astor, Brooke Astor, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt with her Vanderbilt jeans and uh, her uh, her paintings, and she is sort of an intriguing personality. And uh, uh, Lily Pulitzer, who with her fashions really started, uh, which started out as a snob uniform, but in fact it became a general fashion craze in the 1960s. And amazingly, 50 years later, it has become sort of an American classic. So she does have a, an enormous fan base, and so... I thought she would make out, I was surprised that there had never been a biography of her because there was so much around her that was very interesting, the personalities around her. Uh, but she actually, it turned out she resisted having a, a biography. She never wanted one. And when I first approached her, uh, she, she told me she didn't want one. But um, so it is not actually an authorized biography. It was, uh, which is actually better for a biographer right. not to have a, a, an authorized biography. You sort of have to sort of have to tiptoe around the subject too much. So in a way, it gave me the freedom to do a book pretty much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. So what sources were most helpful to you? And also, were you able to interview Lily Pulitzer? Or did yes, you I did. And mm-hmm. I actually had known her. I had interviewed her for a major piece back in the 80s. I think it was the longest, biggest uh, story ever uh, on Palm Beach. It was almost a 30-page story in the oh. town and country with photographs by Slim Aarons. And, However, I had interviewed her before. Uh, we, <laughs> town and country, perhaps almost too much, so uh, did stories on them something about Palm Beach practically every other year. <laughs> and so I was the editor. I wasn't the writer of those pieces, but very often uh, uh, it needed more material as an editor. So I, I had interviewed her actually over the telephone a couple of times, but I met her uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, and um, I was impressed by how uh, by that time there had been all these glamorous photographs of her uh, that I had seen over the years with her very good-looking husband. Uh, they looked very, uh, very exotic and, of course, uh, were among the first people who, who, whose very richly textured lives, but sort of also um, with a touch of irreverence that, that, that I've seen, you know, over the years in, um, in many other magazines as well. So it was interesting to see how unpretentious she was. Um, I was taken over there by a friend called William Hutton, who's a descendant of the original, uh, of E.F. Hutton. Uh, and, uh, uh, and she was just, uh, she was a working mom. She was anxious to get back to her children. It was around five o'clock and, uh, she wanted to go home and cook, cook for her children, but she was fun. She was, uh, uh, she was quotable. She's great with her zingers and one-liners. So I had, um, uh, and I had seen her a few years later in the late 80s again. Um, she actually knew my husband uh, as a child, so I had that. So she trusted me, uh, but she did not want to sit down and go over, uh, you know, to work with me as I mm-hmm. 
um, you know, going over manuscripts, sitting down every day for interviews. She she said she was too tired and just didn't want to do that. So she resisted it to some extent, and she kept several times. She said, "Must you do this? Must you do this?" And then um, I heard from her friends. She was always afraid. She said, "Oh, a biographer is always unearth something that you don't want to hear about, or you don't want the public to know." And uh, of course, she came from very famous families. Uh, uh, the general, uh, what is interesting, as you know, she died um, recently, and uh, she, uh, it's interesting, people, the media always says she married into the Pulitzer family. Well, actually, she came from much more illustrious families than the Pulitzer's, I and mean, she came from very old pre-revolutionary stock. She was born Lily McKim, and they were a very interesting family, as were her uh, the family of her mother, the Bostwicks, who started uh, uh, Standard Oil, and her stepfather's family, uh, Ogden Phipps, uh, who was head of the jockey club and the highly... Um, well, we can talk about that later, but, but a very, very, very important man who came from, uh, whose family started, uh, along with Andrew Carnegie, what became ultimately U.S. Steel in Pittsburgh. So she has, has quite a big background herself. Right. And, uh, of course, she married into the mood, media uh, family, the Pulitzers, mm-hmm. which is... Um, which probably enhanced her fame because it was a name that was known. Right. It was better known in a way because of the Pulitzer Prizes and all the other families who were quiet rich, you know, American, very sort of sheltered rich. I mean, they, they, they did not give too many interviews, but they were super rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were actually much richer than the Pulitzers. So the book bounces around in time a bit. What made you settle upon this structure? Yes, actually, it's interesting that you asked that it was very hard to do the structure. <laughs> uh, and I think by by starting uh, at at the the instance when she becomes sort of a celebrity, still a lo- essentially a local celebrity in Palm Beach, uh, and surrounded by all these women who want to be like her. And it, it, the book starts out... Uh, I really thought about quite a lot how to start this, and initially I was more chronologically, I organized it more chronologically, but I, I well, then it was too hard to explain um, uh, who she was and how this all happened, so I wanted to start with a dramatic point, and also that she wasn't necessarily, she just wasn't just a rich woman, uh, but she had already had some ups and downs, and and I had to hint at that. I thought in the first chapter because I think uh, writing today to attract even a publisher, um, you you have to sort of get hooked in the beginning of the book today, whether it's a novel or. Uh, uh, so I presented her as uh, the it girl of the 1960s in Palm Beach, where, where, where when she appears at a a school um, field day, and um, in a, in her own, one of her own dresses. But she's surprised to find that all the other women are wearing. All the other mothers of all the children seem to be turned out in Lily Pulitzer shifts, mm-hmm. and she's kind of amazed at this. And they throng around her. They want to touch her. They want to say hello to her as she comes on the field. And all of a sudden, she's sort of feels like is a star it's become it's apparent that she is a star in palm beach and um and so i go into it how did all this happen because the big question is uh, and and i've been asked this by other interviewers how was it that uh, why was it that these these little shifts and almost little nothing clothes uh with very bright colors uh which are sort of euphoric on the eye they're very happy Mm -hmm. childlike dresses and how did they catch on with a very sophisticated um, uh, group of women in Palm Beach, very fashion-minded. Uh, but there were many reasons for that. But above all, that she was sort of, uh, uh, she was a girl who had everything at that point, a woman who had everything. She had the 
most attractive husband. Peter Pulitzer was uh, uh, sort of the the catch uh, in Palm Beach. Uh, there was sort of a race equality to him. Actually, would go into the fact that uh, he wasn't really uh, quite the glamorous rich playboy that everyone thought he was. He had, had he inherited much less money than people thought he did. And Palm Beach is so much about money. So he actually built up his. Uh, he 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 uh, used his meager inheritance to buy a, a bowling alley. Then, uh, out of the bowling alley, he he uh, eventually around there built a orange groves way in the wild country. It would, his orange groves were never in Palm Beach. They were up in uh, near Lake Okeechobee, near a Seminole Indian reservation. And he was um, sort of flying up every morning. He did have a seaplane, which made him seem very racy and glamorous. <laughs> And he would get into this wilderness with uh, snakes and alligators, and uh, uh, it was really wild country. And uh, the vegetation even can uh, could uh, scratch you and hurt you. Red ants, and and uh, he built a very successful uh, a series of orange groves. And um, so she she was. Uh, I think that Lily was sort of uh, almost immediately perceived. She had everything in a way. She was good-looking. She had a good-looking husband. She had three beautiful children, had a house everyone wanted to go to because it was uh, sort of a mixture of Tropicana and Victoriana, and yet they were doing all uh, the new dances. There was always someone playing the guitar or someone doing the twist. Um, there were all these dogs, and uh, she even had a pet monkey, she and her husband. They were kind of exotic, sort of Tarzan and Jane, as they they went everywhere barefoot. They were very deeply tanned, and uh, they sort of stood out. They they were not like their other um, people in their social strata. They, they, they were kind of rebels. And uh, in, in an appealing way, they gave wild parties. They would party till 4 o'clock in the morning. and But they didn't have the staff of servants most other people in these big mansions had. They did everything themselves. They would have their friends come over and chop uh, vegetables and chop. So this is where I wanted to give a portrait of her. But also, she was. Um, this was the time until. Uh, this was the time the spotlight really came to Palm Beach. Until then, Palm Beach was a place of uh, very, uh, very rich people, but uh, who lived sort of quietly, and everyone knew everyone. No one had to prove anything. So uh, if you had a a uh, Shetland sweater with a hole on it. It was sort of almost a reverse snobbery of uh, uh, you felt so socially secure <laughs> because Palm Beach has always had underneath it all always had was sort of a social climbing place as well. It, it, it has this dichotomy of being uh, having some of the uh, most established people, but also uh, because it is sort of the apex of of showing off your wealth, it also has that other social insecurity and um, aspect to it. So, uh, with the Kennedy, it was a Kennedy era, and of course, uh, I wanted to say all this in the beginning of the book, just hint at this mm -hmm. that Lily was a a close friend of Jackie Kennedy. They went to boarding school together. They were not classmates, but they were. Uh, Lily, uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy was a year ahead of Lily, but they were good friends. They also went to the same school, girls' uh, private school, uh, girls' school in New York, uh, called the Chapin School. So they've known each other, and uh, so Lily was. Uh, uh, also, the, her closeness to the Kennedy family with all the spotlight coming to Palm Beach suddenly with the Kennedys, the young president who was, uh, and his very chic wife. And all of a sudden, the media was interested in, um, in, in Palm Beach and life in Palm Beach, all of which has, it did not have as much. There were always party pictures about Palm Beach in the past. Very glamorous movie stars partying, but not really the lifestyle itself. So, with Lily, all of a sudden, Lily and Jackie Kennedy, this, this Palm Beach lifestyle suddenly was in the in, in in of great interest to Life magazine and 
all the Time magazine, all the magazines, uh, Look magazine, uh, all the general interest magazines as well, because the new president-elect was, uh, that's where he was writing his Kennedy, John F. Kennedy was writing his uh, inaugural speech, his uh, uh, he was selecting his cabinet, so there was a lot of um, media interest in Palm Beach all of a sudden. You mentioned that Lily and Jackie Kennedy went to the same boarding school. I wonder if we could go back and talk about that, because one of the most fascinating sections in the book to me was your discussion of the educational options available to women of this social class at the time, at Chapin yes. and Mrs. Porter's. Could you discuss that a bit? And also just give us a sense of what was expected of a woman of Lily's social class, because she seems so cool and kind of radical. What was, how was that different from what was expected from her? Yeah, she was actually, she was really a rebel. First of all, she looked very different from her other classmates at uh, Miss Porter's school, which is often referred to as Farmington, uh, uh, because it was in, it's in Farmington, Connecticut. Um, she, uh, her, first of all, it was a school, uh, I think her classmates, and schoolmates were an incredible group of women to begin with. But it was very um, conforming. These women were expected to catch a great husband, and they did. Many of them uh, married people like uh, uh, Nicholas Brady, who was uh, Secretary of Treasury for two presidents, President Reagan and President Bush. Uh, and uh, they, they were expected to... to um, uh, they were not expected to have careers, but oddly enough, most of these women became a lot more than arm candy, uh, and uh, they were a fascinating group of, of, of women who went there. Um, among them, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt, the actress uh, Jean uh, Tierney, who was an Academy Award winner, uh, uh, and in later years, uh, and Julia Childs, the food uh, guru. <laughs> she she was a, a Farmington girl. Uh, Barbara Hutton, the much married socialite, uh, and uh, but it was actually a very strict school in many ways, and uh, uh, it was. It had a reputation for being a finishing school, but actually it started out to be a much more uh, intellectual school than Foxcroft, which was, uh, you would have thought that uh, uh, Lily would have gone to Foxcroft, which, where you could board your horse, it's, and uh, it was a very horsey school, and she came from a very horsey family on Long Island. Uh, the family started polo, and uh, they, they won uh, oh, endless championships. They had horses like uh, uh, Secretariat and Seabiscuits were a part of her her world, actually more her stepfather's world, Ogden Phipps's world, but uh, she, she grew up around horses. So um, there was a horse riding, there were a lot of sports, but actually it was a, a, a Miss Porter herself uh, was the sister of one of the presidents of Yale. So she uh, uh, it started out a, a school that has taught Greek, Latin, uh, French, German, uh, uh, and, and but by the time Lily was there, it was also sort of the school for the children of some of the uh, great tycoons of our era. And, and, um, um, but it was a conforming school. She was quite different even then. She wore her ha hair in sort of Pocahontas braids when all the other women had page boys and uh, uh, bobs and uh, wore circle pants. She always, uh, at that point, she already had expressed a certain individuality. Um, and uh, she was very popular with the boys because she was very. She had a great sense of humor, which she did until the end of her life. Even when she, Lily, these last few months when she was very ill, people told me that when they spoke to her, she was still cracking jokes, and uh, uh, and she could speak. Uh, I mean, she, as, some, as one of her friends said, uh, some of her, she, some of her uh, conversation could make the wallpaper peel. They were so uh, <laughs> she used such colorful language, and uh, so she was very popular. And she was totally unpretentious. She was a very natural, uninhibited person, and but she was not a good student. And I think that that might have been hard for her because she was with Jacqueline Kennedy, was an excellent student, very ambitious student and uh, serious, uh, and, and so she 
whether she didn't want to keep up or couldn't quite keep up, uh, uh, she she did not. She was not a very academically. She was not very distinguished, and uh, which kind of affected her later on because these girls. Uh, uh, Many of them did go on to Sterling American Universities, mostly the Seven Sister Colleges, but many of them did not, you know, because they were expected to get married as soon as, uh, <laughs> as soon as they were. I mean, they they were panicked about uh, not being married, and it was a different time. It was uh, uh, a girl could be. Um, Oh, if she was, it was there was a great competition for these men, like like John F. Kennedy, uh, and uh, uh, all these. Uh, they they dated people like uh, John Cassavetes, the independent filmmaker. Some of her friends were already dating men who would come very become famous. They married princes, uh, Russian princes, um, uh, such as Prince Chastavelsi, who became. Um, uh, kind of important in the diplomatic circles and especially in uh, uh, Berlin after the war with uh, the Russian defectors. He spoke Russian. So a lot of these men already, they, they picked men who would be kind of uh, uh, distinguish themselves later on. Um, also at Miss Porter School, I mean, later on, uh, uh, there were President Bush's daughter, Dorothy, for example, was there. She had incredibly... Uh, uh, inc- there were incredible uh, classmates and schoolmates that she had around her, and uh, they all, most of these girls, married quite well. Princess um, uh, Peggy Do- uh, Peggy Bedford, who was also Standard Oil heiress, was also at uh, Miss Porter's at the time. Peggy Bedford, who then became bankrupt, and he became princess. She became Princess Darenberg and. Uh, France and then the Duchess Duzes, and she was sort of um, the equivalent of almost a playgirl. She was a very beautiful blonde. Uh, I don't know, but she was sort of an illustrious society figure at the time, and much married. And uh, she died in a car crash, like all the playboys at the time. Um, Porfirio Ruby Rosa and who else died in the Bois de Boulogne outside of Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of these people did live past lives and. Uh, um, but they, may, they, they, they were an interesting group of girls and very popular with all the young men at the time at all the important schools and uh, uh, East Coast uh, boarding schools, New England boarding schools. I actually recently reread um, Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, which is often applied to women of the middle class. But I think it also there are parallels in women of the upper class, like Lily, and how she became, how she found solace in work after a difficult time in her marriage and in her private life. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Uh, uh, yes. About Betty Friedan, about uh, Lily Pulser, you'd like me to talk um, about Lily. Right? About Lily, how, Lily's difficulties and how she became, how she wound up with the job at the juice stand. Yes. Uh, well, actually, and and I think sort of that goes back to the structure of the book. I did want to say, in, even though we see Lily at the height of her kind of um, adulation by by her fellow of Palm Beach matrons, and uh, and and there is a hint that she will soon become a national star, but. Uh, what I wanted to say right then and there in the beginning, that all this came, uh, even though her clothes are such cheery, happy, euphoric, uh, almost childlike, uh, uh, joyous uh, creations, uh, they were born from um, a, actually a fairly difficult childhood and uh, a difficult uh, uh, early adulthood. And... Uh, she uh, and I think that the psyche, the psychologically, yes, I think that uh, a lot of these. She she was sort of in a way just like Betty Friedan. She she Betty Friedan basically had everything too a woman would want at that at the time she became so restless and realized there's got to be more to this. Uh, I think Lily. Um, uh, Lily Lily had uh, was married at age eighteen. Uh, uh, excuse me, at age 20. So, and almost immediately she had, in, in four years, she had three babies. So she had three children. And uh, after which she, after the third child, she she uh, fell into a major depression and uh, uh, 
what they called a nervous collapse. So she was hospitalized for four months, after which uh, uh, the doctor said, you've got to do something. And she said, well, what can I do? I, I don't have much of an education. I've always had my nannies and my mummy do everything for me, make all my decisions. I, uh, But while she was in the hospital, she did do some sketching, and she's always been talented with, uh, um, she had a good sense of proportion, and people have seen these early drawings, and that she really uh, had a talent for color, proportion, uh, uh, scale, and, and so, uh, however, she didn't know what to do at all, and all of a sudden she had this brainstorm that she's got to do something immediately. The doctor said, you've got to do something. No, you can't just idly be idle, and she did feel, I think this depression was also... Um, came about uh, she was very lonely in Palm Beach uh, Palm Beach in those days she, she and Peter were very different from their other wealthy friends in that they stayed there year round he because he had to for the orange groves and for his business and um Palm Beach would get very lonely with the hurricane season. Everything was shuttered up. Oh, there were only about five stores open. It was very different from what it is today. And where today a lot of people do live there all year round, but in those days it was not. And uh, so that added to this feeling of um, helplessness and all her friends. She, she missed her friends up north. Um, so she started, uh, she didn't know what to do, and she decided she would start her own business. Whatever she was going to do, she would start her own business. Mm-hmm. But uh, the first step to that was actually, um, <laughs> she still had to depend on her husband for the oranges. For the, uh, So she decided to open an, uh, an orange juice stand, which is very unusual in a place like Palm Beach with all the 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 greatest uh, uh, luxury goods uh, merchants on Worth Avenue, both sides in their uh, pink coral and marble stores. And uh, so she had this humble little um, little uh, orange juice stand where she was juicing the oranges. They would arrive every morning. Uh, Peter would fly them down from his, from, they would get up at dawn, 5 o'clock, and he would fly up to bring her crates of fresh oranges. And she was juicing these oranges on the, on the, on the corner and barefoot, uh, but in pretty white linen outfits. And, of course, the uh, orange juice would splatter all over. And she decided she had to figure out uh, something that would be like an apron, but she didn't want it to be, you know, sort of like an apron. She didn't want it to be an apron. So she decided to... Um, to she went to the five and dime, bought some fabric, very cheap cotton fabric, and had her uh, dressmaker sew them up into sleeveless little shifts. She called them little nothing dresses that you could unzip in the heat because, of course, it was in the tropics, bending down, squeezing, cutting up the oranges, and the juice would run down her arms. Uh, she needed something very practical, and that's how these little shifts were born. And uh, uh, it was not an original shape, the A-line. It was basically an A-line dress, but she slit them up higher for more movement, and she often wore these dresses with the back sort of somewhat unzipped. I don't think she wore a bra, which was part, whether that was rebellion or, or just uh, uh, the heat. Uh, I, I, I don't think it was a Betty Friedan kind of uh, feminist statement. I don't think there was ever any real feminist talk coming from her, but basically uh, she was a, a, a rebellious person against this regimented um, sort of propriety that was expected of her. And she did actually, this was in the 60s and 70s when it was not very fashionable to say you were a debutante. Uh, to some extent, she was sort of like a rich hippie of her time, but I don't, I, I think she was always very humble and never really, and, and quite modest even about her own achievements. So this this juicing of oranges became kind of a daily party or sort of a picnic. It had a picnic uh, spirit about it, and there was always music. But when she started wearing these little shifts, all her friends wanted to. It looked rather wonderful on her. She looked like a, a Gauguin um, uh, painting or a, a, a South Seas girl with her long 
black hair and her gypsy earrings and uh, running around barefoot she can she looked very good she she and, and so everyone wanted to have a little dress like hers and then people came down during the height of the season and they took you know tens of these dresses with them back to other northern uh, resorts uh, and wore them in Gross Point or Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard mostly at first mostly east coast uh, um, Atlantic islands of Massachusetts and on, on Long Island and Southampton East Hampton that's where the clothes were sort of popularized and the next thing she knew she um, Lord and Taylor, Saxon Avenue, and uh, Bendel's, all these sort of prestigious shops at the time wanted her dresses. So she had no experience, no business experience, but um, her older sister introduced her to a former editor of Harper's Bazaar, Laura Robbins, who did help her sort of how to, with the fashion cycle, how to deliver Things to the stores and uh, how to uh, how to actually find people to help her with her fabrics. How to find how to uh, uh, establish a a factory in Miami. And this was during the time of the Cuban um, Castro's time. Uh, Castro took over Cuba, and there were enormous number of Cuban refugees. And many of her uh, the seamstresses she first employed. She always she wanted to help. She always wanted to help friends. Friends who became charge who opened boutiques for her across the country and she started opening boutiques but all this was really i think she had very good help from her husband in this and 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 he had a good business sense and i imagine they had professional help in but they a lot of this was just sort of very ad hoc and they opened boutiques i mean they didn't fully registered and she didn't trademark her she didn't have a trademark yet and her clothes were already copied other people and uh, so a lot of this happened sort of almost happened since but Laura Robbins really helped her because she knew um, the fashion press as a, a former editor, fashion editor at, um, uh, in New York and uh, she knew the um, so she knew how to get publicity for, for these clothes and also she knew heads of department stores um, but it was not a, a an official partnership and eventually um, it seemed that the press was more interested in Lily than in Laura, mm-hmm. and so the partners broke up after a while. But Laura was very influential and very helpful in helping establish her as a fashion phenomenon mm-hmm. of the 60s. So we're going to fast forward a bit because I really want to get this question, and this is my messy question that I told you about earlier. Um, so Lily was enormously successful for a while, and then the business folded, and then they brought it back later on. So I've recently had the pleasure of reading several interviews with, of doing several interviews with biographers who are writing about the lives of women in fashion. So we've got Coco Chanel, um, Diana Vreeland, and now Lily Pulitzer. And I've noticed that in each of these women's lives, there was a comeback in later life. So can you talk about Lily's comeback um, within her own life, but then also the idea of a comeback in the fashion industry, if this is... When you read these three lives, not that it makes it look simple, but it makes it seem like it's an industry where you can easily do this, and I don't think it is. So can you talk about that a bit? Yes. Actually, it's it's highly unusual. It's just the opposite that it's it's uh, uh, fashion is such a fickle business, and uh, uh, many other people have tried to come back, or or people have tried to bring back uh, former labels. I I think it was uh, when Laura Ashley, for example, died. I think people tried to bring back her brand, and uh, it 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 uh, was another era. And uh, those wonderful garden party dresses of the English countryside dresses um, were perfect for their time. But her little prints are still, I think, successful as wallpaper. I think it, and and but her actual clothes never really came back. Now, most recently, Sarah Jessica Parker and the Weinstein brothers tried to bring back the Halston labor label, which Halston was very popular in the uh, oh, in the disco era and. Uh, uh, 
Liza Minnelli, Elizabeth Taylor were were fans, and that was impossible. They've tried to bring an enormous amount of effort went into bringing it back. It just failed. Uh, I think the only one um, other person other than what you the people you mentioned, uh, Diane Furstenberg, uh, came back with her wrap dresses, which were also in the early seventies fashion. And uh, but Diane Furstenberg was never really out of the limelight. She would lo- wrote books on uh, beds and. Uh, uh, I think dining rooms and entertainment. She, she was always somewhat in the dime, limelight as a personality, so she never fully closed her business down. But Lily did. Lily experienced uh, a, a series of uh, very uh, difficult things, uh, difficult uh, events. Her sister committed suicide, and there was a very messy divorce with Peter Pulitzer, which hit the scandal sheets every day. Uh, not so much her, her divorce, but actually his his divorced from his second wife, so which she was very concerned about her children being exposed to some of the sleazy stuff at the time, which literally made daily headlines as uh, Peter Pulitzer and his second wife, Roxanne, uh, were fighting over the custody of their children. And, um, and then all of a sudden, her own, uh, these bright, colorful dresses in the 1980s um, were sort of eclipsed by... Um, um, they, they they were sort of beside the point. Uh, all leisure was beside the point. It was a time of uh, women wanting to sit in the boardrooms, wanting to wear pinstriped uh, pantsuits, uh, high-shouldered power dresses, sort of also what Margaret Thatcher wore. Those uh, uh, They wore skirts, um, but th- it was dressed for success. That was the uh, era of the 1980s. And so uh, Lily uh, closed down her business in, um, I believe, uh, it, it was in the, the uh, mid 1980s. Suddenly, I don't have the date, but uh, and uh, she was happy about it. She was married to her second husband, a Cuban lawyer, and her second marriage actually was the love of her life. And it's a very romantic part of my book uh, that uh, because he was quite an ex- Enrique Rousseau was quite an extraordinary person, American educated uh, Cuban from one of the large Cuban families. Uh, very international, very worldly, and had the same uh, zest for life that Lily did. So she did. They did have a very happy 22-year marriage. Anyway, uh, after unfortunately Enrique died um, uh, too soon, but uh, that was the great love of her life. And uh, uh, even though most people sort of remember the Peter Pulitzer partnership because they were very photogenic together uh, with Peter. Anyway. Uh, so she uh, ex- experienced sort of several kind of tragedies at the time, including the uh, the death, you know, the, the illness and death of her beloved second husband. When uh, um, and she 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 kind of was just sort of shrugged her shoulder when she closed down, and she said, "Well, I did it for 25 years. Maybe it's time to quit and enjoy being a mother, a grandmother, and a wife." And uh, she and Enrique built this wonderful jungly house in a um, uh, sort of almost forgotten corner of Palm Beach with access to the Atlantic Ocean, a, a, a tiny little creek running through it. And, and so she, she, and she always had, she took on all these Cuban, um, uh, she, she was very attracted to the Cuban way of cooking and fun and uh, Latin Americans always know how to fun, have fun and she always wa- enjoyed giving parties so every Sunday she would have hundreds of people come to her buffets with Enrique, all her even uh, her children's ex-husbands her stepchildren so she actually had a very full life but uh, when out of the blue two um, Harvard MBAs two very attractive young men uh uh, James Bradbeer and Scott Beaumont uh, uh, approached her to revive her brand. Again, she kind of fought them a little. She didn't want to do it. Uh, she, she, they had to make seven visits to uh, to Florida to convince her to to um, to open up her uh, to to revive her business and her clothes. And all of a sudden, I guess the more they came, she did like them. Uh, and uh, the more they came, the more she realized that she missed uh, 
being involved with making uh, creative or working with these wonderful colors, color combinations. And so she finally agreed. But the, what motivated these two young men is that by this time, there was sort of a revival, the, uh, of um, not a revival, but I think uh, her uh, vintage lilies were flying off the eBay and a whole new generation sort of had a hunger for these colorful uh, or appreciation for these vintage lilies. So they, um, all of a sudden it seemed like the zeitgeist was right again for, for, for these uh, color was coming back. Because initially uh, when lilies started, that was sort of a time where there was a hunger for color after you know, those post-World War years. There was, of course, uh, um, the London had all those colorful clothes, wonderful music. There was a little more sensuousness, a sort of, uh, and I think today, with the world being what uh, sort of such a serious and uh, difficult place, I think these happy clothes they, and they, and she seems to be this revival um, uh, by Sugartown. The, the two young men uh, had a corporation called Sugartown, which in recent years was bought by yet a larger corporation called Oxford Industries in Atlanta. These two young men came from Philadelphia. Uh, Scott Beaumont and uh, and Sugartown is in Pennsylvania, outside of, of Philadelphia. Uh, but they were recently, in the year 2010, bought by Oxford Industries, and uh, so I think it's still widening and growing, and it is very popular, and it has grown, uh, expanded into uh, all sorts of licensing of sunglasses, sheets. Uh, tablecloths, um, and of course, a lot more menswear, and especially children's clothes are very popular. And um, so I think they, but going back to the third, second life of fashion editors and fashion people, actually, I think it's almost a brutally, brutally um, uh, difficult industry. There are so many stars who who sort of come and shine for a few years and then disappear. And uh, so it is highly unusual that Diana Vreeland uh, uh, was able to, she was a legendary editor, of course, but she was only at Harper's Bazaar for about, uh, no, at Harper's Bazaar she was there for many, many years, but she was editor-in-chief of Vogue for only about uh, nine or nine years. And... Uh, uh, it was the absolute apex of uh, Vogue's uh, uh, doing very unusual things, uh, covering uh, uh, youth culture and, and very exciting color pages, exotic color pages, exotic models such as Penelope Tree, Verushka. Uh, Mrs. Reland did have a wild, uh, wild imagination. I did know her because uh, she, she was just leaving Harper's Bazaar when I first went there as a junior fashion copywriter, so I do remember her, and she was a very colorful character every bit as colorful, but the fact that she was able to have this second career at the Metropolitan Museum, which was actually a very quiet part, the fashion department of the Metropolitan Museum was at the time a very quiet division of the museum, and uh, that she would make it something very alive with her yearly big fashion um, mounting these enormous fashion shows such as um, oh, about um, uh, Russian peasants or the Habsburg Empire and she would um, uh, or revive some of the uh, early French couturiers or show on Saint Laurent. I mean she was really, she made it something very alive and um, I think it, it's all the more uh, hats off to her that she was able to do this because it's quite unusual. I know a lot of uh, very, very creative fashion editors who sort of go into the night and you never hear mm -hmm. from them and um, uh, having actually a very hard time making ends meet, especially cause, uh, because fashion changes so much and mm -hmm. it actually also wants new... It, 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 thrives on discovering new new personalities, both as editors, both as uh, 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 and certainly as um, designers. Designers don't always have such a long uh, long life. I think mm -hmm. in in our time, in our time, in modern times. Thank you so much for talking with us today about Lily. Any idea who you're going to be writing about next? 
yes, actually, I, I, I am now editing a book on uh, of also somewhat of uh, uh, this Kennedy era is uh, a book about um, John Carl Warnicke, uh the architect of Camelot. He did the Camelot. Uh, he did the uh, Kennedy grave in Arlington and was very close to the. Uh, uh, so it's an inside look at the Kennedy era. Um, but he was particularly those the last days of doing the grave. How difficult it was to do that eternal uh, same grave. But also he was going to be President Kennedy promised him the Kennedy Library and all the intrigues because architects from all over the world wanted to do that. But and he brought in his close friend uh, Warnicke brought in his close friend I M Pei, who of course totally charmed the Kennedy women. He ended up uh, doing the Kennedy Library in Boston, which is in the news right now and um, uh, so it's uh, but it, it, it's full of very interesting characters uh, uh, intrigued intriguing love stories behind the scenes and uh, so uh, and uh, Janko Warnicke then was the first uh, uh, romance Mrs. Kennedy had after her husband's death they worked very closely on the grave and the library and all other things and they, uh, he's also the designer of the um, at the time he was designing the Hawaii had just become um, a, a brand new American state the last uh, of the new states and uh, and uh, he was designing the uh, uh, state capital of Hawaii so it's it's an architectural story I have a lot of background writing about architecture and design so uh, this seems to be a natural. I uh, do want to, after that, I would like to write about magazines and, and an inside book on magazines. And uh, I can't figure out whether I should do it as fiction or as a, as a, but uh, that's, that's really the big project coming up. Uh, fascinating. As, but I may do it as fiction, but with sort of uh, real figures sort of sprinkled throughout well-known figures sprinkled throughout so but it i, I think it I, I have not decided yet um, well it sounds like you have some good possibilities <laughs> yes i think it's a very intriguing story yeah. because we've had of course the devil wears prada which is uh kind of tongue-in-cheek and and funny but uh you know there is um there are some serious things about the magazine world that, that have never been uh, one of them is uh what happens to people when they leave this magazine world? You know, they, 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 it is very hard to get your next job. You can go into uh, a public relations, but having lived in this glamorous uh, world of expense accounts, uh, rubbing shoulders with celebrities, what happens next? You know, and, and also the dichotomy in many people's lives, mm-hmm. you know, these glossy, the glossy life of magazines and their private lives and it's not good on marriages and uh, uh, and so forth so there's a lot uh, there's a lot that has not been written about uh, there's the, uh, of course uh, there's a lot of fun and glamour and fizz and <laughs> good times and, and so it could uh, I, I think it has a lot of potential so that's really what I'm thinking about I'm about I'm finished I'm getting very close to finishing the, uh, um, the book about the architect so um I, my, that's my next uh, uh, fun. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been talking today with Catherine Livingston about Lily Pulitzer, Palm Beach Tropical Glamour, and the birth of a fashion legend. I'm Online Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.